The sermon text today is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29. You can um, find this passage in the Pew Bible on page 1531 or in your device or in your own Bible. So we'll read there. So listen as I read God's word. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and others claimed he is a prophet like the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he put him and bound him and put him in prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him. Knowing him to be a righteous and holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, opportunity came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, 
She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with this request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. Glad to be back with you this morning. My family was out of town last weekend. We, were, uh, we started a tradition of going camping around the 4th of July every year. And so we took our pop-up out with some friends from our neighborhood, and we were camping. And uh, I was a little bit bummed that I couldn't be here when Matt was here, but also I knew I wasn't going to be here. I asked him to be here because I wasn't going to be here. So I, I knew about that, but I was still bummed that I was not able to be here uh, while he was here. Uh, Before we get into the message this morning, I have one more brief announcement that I want to give, and uh, that announcement is that coming up on the 21st of July, so not this Friday, but the following Friday, uh, we're going to be having our next membership class. And this is an opportunity for you if you have been around Elmwood for a long time and you've not yet become a covenant member or you are newer to Elmwood and you're wondering about some of the the history and more of the specifics of the the vision and our ethos and what kind of a church we are and how we do what we do, uh, this is a great place for you to get connected with that. It's an opportunity for you to ask questions of of me and anything you want to know about myself personally or about Elmwood, uh, we just invite you to... Uh, to join us for that. And uh, if you come to the membership class, you're not like forced to become a member. Okay. So there's no, like, um, you're not signing your, your name on the dotted line for that. But if you do want to become a member, taking part in the membership class is a part of that process. So just want to invite you uh, to join us on Friday, the 21st from six to 8 PM for that next membership class. One of the things that we have been doing as we have been making our way through the book of Mark is we have been encouraging you to spend time reading the book of Mark throughout the week. Uh, We want to not just be people who come on Sundays and just hear someone else talk about the Bible. We want to be the kind of people that are immersed in the Bible ourselves, people who have a a desire to spend time with Jesus in the Bible, to encounter him there. And so uh, we've been asking you to read the book of Mark. And each Sunday we've been giving opportunity for you as you have encountered Jesus in the book of Mark to, to tell others, to tell us, what is it that you've been hearing? What have you been learning? What have you been sort of uh, pondering? What are you seeing maybe for the first time or in fresh ways? How are you, uh, how is what you're reading leading you to delight in who God is? 
And so we just want to hear that from you. Uh, so I want to just open up the floor. Uh, if you would just raise your hands, as always, I will hold on to the mic. I will not hand you the mic, but I will hold on to the mic and I will walk around. And if you would like to share something, uh, if you would keep it to about 90 seconds or less, that'd be wonderful. So anyone want to share? So um, as we've been going through Mark, one of the things that has really helped me is that, as you guys know, uh, or most of you know, uh, I went to Israel in March. And so some of these um, stories have just been really coming to life for me, um, having been there and, um, you know, been where Jesus walked and seen the synagogue in Capernaum where he preached and going to Peter's house right next door to the um, synagogue there. And so it's just been amazing for me to be reading through the gospel. Um, You know, not that I wouldn't have wanted to go to Israel and then come back and heard a series on Psalms, but (laughs) it was just kind of convenient that we were doing Mark at at the time. So that's great. Been blessed by that. So Some of the, the geography stuff is really helpful in understanding, really helps bring stuff to life. Benjamin? Um, in, the, in the recent passage uh, about Jairus' daughter being raised, um, it struck me that um, while Jairus is sitting here, his daughter's life hangs in the balance, and he believes there's a rabbi who can heal her. Then the other woman comes up and delays Jesus, and I... As a father, I just can't imagine what he was feeling, saying, listen, this, this lady can be healed later. My daughter is dying, right? And, um, and what he, the, just the, the deep emotion that was happening there, the tension that probably in his own heart watching this happen. And yet, knowing that, you, you back out a little bit, Jesus knew all along what would happen and why, what needed to happen and why even his daughter needed to die so that he could raise her to life again to show his power. And that just really strikes me that um, when there's stuff in our lives that feel like, what are you doing, God? Um, that he, he knows what he's doing all the time. And uh, even death can't conquer his power. So, um, yeah, just a, just a striking thing to think about for me. Yeah, so good. One more. I'm, just, I'm not going to be pondering. I'm just looking at this. And he has, sends them out two by two. And they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Um, I think it's something to think about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We'll be uh, next Sunday. We'll be talking about that very thing. So. All right, as we come to this 
specific passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, this morning we give you thanks that you are on our side and that our help does not come from anywhere except from you, who are the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, thank you that even in the midst of social and cultural and political pressures, uh, that you are our hiding place. Thank you that you will not let us be overtaken. Thank you that even in the midst of whatever we face, we can trust that you are on our side. We pray that you would give us a clear sense of that this morning. Help us to see Jesus in this passage Help us to see the good news of what he's done for us and leave here changed people, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. The center of the passage that you heard Tracy read just a moment ago is Jesus sending out his 12 disciples to join him on his mission. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend today and next week looking at this sort of uh, chunk of the book. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the rejection of Jesus and the beheading of John. So those two things flank, those two things are on the sides of this passage in the middle where Jesus sends his disciples out. And we're going to look at and say, okay, what does Jesus's rejection and John's beheading teach us about life on mission together with Jesus? And then next Sunday... We're going to look at the specific instructions that Jesus gave his followers as he sent them out, and we're going to sort of zero in on his instructions as it relates to the casting out of demons. Uh, I promised a couple months ago that we would talk about this, and I am, uh, to be honest with you, somewhat regretting making that promise to you. Uh, but here we are. Uh, we see the, the demon possession and the casting out of demons is, is very prominent in the book of Mark. And so it's just like it's right there for us. And so we just have to ask the question, well, what do we do with that? How do we understand that? What part, if any, should casting out of demons play in our lives as disciples of Jesus? And so we just want to talk about that. And so you can pray for me because I have like 27 minutes (laughs) to talk about that next week. And uh, so I've been reading some books and just doing lots of thinking and processing and praying and trying to have conversations about this with people. And uh, I'm going to do my best to sort of summarize that in one message next week. Uh, So that's where we're headed next week. But today we're looking at this passage of Jesus's rejection and John's beheading. And what we see in this passage that uh, you heard read was that there's Jesus is entering into a new phase of his plan to train his disciples. 
So the plan, the process, or the method that Jesus used to train his disciples was a method that we are very familiar with. It's called apprenticeship. So being an apprentice is simply sitting under, learning from someone who's more experienced than yourself. So, so many of us have experienced apprenticeship in a variety of different areas of life. So some of us have experienced that in our vocational life, in a formal way, uh, in, in some industries like the trades, for example. If you want to be an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter, there's like specific apprenticeships that you have to go through. If you're in any sort of like a sport where you have a coach or anything like this, you've experienced some sort of formal apprenticeship where you are sitting under someone else's teaching and you are learning from someone else. And we also experience this in a variety of different informal ways throughout our lives as well. But this method of apprenticeship is exactly what Jesus uses to train his disciples. And so what we see at the beginning of the book is that Jesus gathers, he appoints these 12 disciples, and it says he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach except he doesn't actually send them out to preach yet. So what they do is they spend, we don't know exactly how long it was, but they spend a whole bunch of time just following Jesus around and they're watching Jesus and they're observing and they're just sort of taking it all in and and their, their minds are just being filled. But then we get to this part of the book where it says that Jesus took those 12 and then sent them out and this is, this is a significant turning point in the book where Jesus' disciples turn from passive observers to active participants in Jesus' ministry. And so as we see this significant shift take place, we also have to just notice how Mark arranges uh, this part of the book. What does he tell us as he tells us about him sending them out on mission? And what he tells us is that Jesus was rejected and that John the Baptist was beheaded. And as those two passages sit on both sides of Jesus sending out his disciples, what I think that we're supposed to gain from this, what I think we're supposed to see in this, is Mark is telling us something about the cost of living on mission with Jesus. That as those disciples were sent out, and that as we, here today in the 21st century, are sent out to join Jesus on his mission, Mark is telling us, this is what it may cost you when you go out on mission with Jesus. And so we're going to be thinking about the cost of mission here today and asking ourselves the question, what can disciples of Jesus expect as they go out and join him on mission? And so the first thing we can expect, we're told here in the text, is this. We can expect to experience the painful sting of personal rejection. We can expect as we go out to experience the painful sting of personal rejection. That's what we see happening uh, with Jesus here is he goes into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and he preaches a sermon and he is rejected by those in his hometown. I never put this together before, but as I was preparing for today, I was reading some uh, lots of different scholars who all point out that Jesus teaching in the synagogue here in Nazareth, the parallel passage to this is Luke chapter 4 where Jesus is in the synagogue. And in Luke chapter four, we actually get the content of what Jesus actually said. So in Luke chapter four, we read that Jesus goes into the synagogue in his hometown and he opens a scroll of Isaiah and he goes to the place where it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's the message that Jesus 
preached in the synagogue. And he looks to this passage that talks about this spirit anointed servant of the Lord who's come to bring this sort of new era of God's deliverance, to bring this new creation and to sort of uh, unleash the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he looks at him and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the spirit anointed servant of the Lord who's come to usher in new creation and usher in the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke tells us that what happens in the end is that they drive him out of town. Mark here highlights a different aspect of their response, which was this like barrage of questions that they have afterwards. Listen to all these questions. I think there's, there's six of them here. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And so there's this barrage of questions that reveal their disdain for Jesus and his message. This is the way Mark summarizes it. He says, they took offense at him. That's the Greek word skandalizo, which if you, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about it, it's like, oh, that's where our English word scandalize comes from. And so they were scandalized by Jesus's message. They took offense at him. They were put off by him. They were repulsed by Jesus and this message that he gave. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has experienced any sort of rejection or opposition, right? All throughout those opening chapters, Jesus is continually getting into situations where he is opposed and he's rejected by those around him. He's misunderstood. But my guess is that this felt somewhat different because this was Jesus's hometown, it's actually kind of, uh, kind of generous to call it a town. Nazareth was a little village that at the time of Jesus had a population of roughly 200 people. Some estimates that archaeologists give are anywhere between 150 and maybe 400. But 200 is about the average of their uh, sort of guesstimates. And just to put that in perspective, the sanctuary of Elmwood has a seating capacity of 375. So almost twice the population of Nazareth can fit inside this room. And so this is a small town. Everybody knows everybody. The people that were there listening to Jesus were the people that he grew up with. They were maybe some of the other moms that had watched him, that had taken care of him. These were uh, childhood friends of his, and we know that it was even his own family. Some members of his own family did not receive him. We know from other parts of the Bible that there are members of Jesus' family that rejected him until after his death and resurrection. And some of his family members never came to trust in who he was. And so Jesus is rejected by those people who were the closest to him. And so my guess is that this one felt a little bit different than the other ones did. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith, is what we're told. So Jesus here experienced the painful sting of personal rejection. And we too, as we go out and live on mission, as we go out and live in obedience to Jesus, as we give our lives to the message of the kingdom of God, and as we announce that message in, in the best way we know how, we can also expect to experience the same kind of rejection. We can expect to experience the painful 
sting of personal rejection. We see this sort of described here in this passage, but Jesus actually teaches his disciples this explicitly in the book of John. Listen to what he says in John 15. In verse 18, he says to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So Jesus explicitly teaches his disciples, this is normal Christianity. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If they rejected me, they will reject you too. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. Blessed are those who are reviled and spoken evil of because of me. This is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 4, where he says, guys, as you experience the fiery trial of suffering and persecution and even death for your faith in Jesus. Don't be surprised as if some strange thing were happening to you. This is normal Christianity is to be rejected by those who are in our spheres of influence. And so you can can see the, um, the concentric circles where Jesus says, in response to their lack of faith, Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own home. So you see the narrowing of, narrowing of the scope. And we can look at our lives and say, you know, as we look at culture more broadly, we can expect to be rejected by our culture more broadly. We can expect to be rejected by those who are in our spheres of influence, the places we live, work, learn, and play. We can expect to be rejected by those who are even in our own households. That's what we can expect. As we go out on mission, as we live in faithfulness to the kingdom of God, we can expect to experience the painful sting of personal rejection. But wait, there's more. We can expect not only to experience this, we can expect to follow in the footsteps of the suffering servant. We see this in the life of John the Baptist, as his life points us to Jesus. Remember, the account of Jesus sending his disciples on mission is flanked by Jesus' rejection and John's beheading. And what that tells us is that we can expect to experience not only personal rejection, but also to follow in the footsteps of our suffering servant. So pick up the story with me in verse 17. Herod had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. The Herod that we read about in this passage is Herod Antipas. This is somewhat a little bit confusing because as you read the Bible, there's a couple different Herods that you encounter. So here it's Herod Antipas. In a different place, there's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who in Matthew chapter 2 gave the orders to have all the baby boys 
in the vicinity of Nazareth killed around the time of Jesus' birth. So Herod the Great had a son, and they named him Antipas. So Herod the Great had 10 wives. Let's just put that out there. He had 10 wives. His fourth wife had a son named Antipas, and so he went by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas also had a brother whose name was Philip, but he went by Herod Philip. So Herod Antipas, Herod Philip are both sons of Herod the Great. Uh, Herod Philip had a wife whose name was Herodias, and he had a daughter with this wife. And what happened was that Herod Antipas convinced Herodias, the wife of his half-brother, so same father, different mother, uh, (laughs) convinced Herodias to divorce her husband, Herod Philip, and marry him, who is Herod Antipas. If you're confused and like kind of grossed out by all this, you should be, because this is like weird. Uh, there's one commentary, commentary I read that actually put together like a flow chart for this. I've looked over this so many times, and I still don't think I understand it. And this is only four of Herod the Great's ten wives. So you can imagine just how like complex and how muddy these relationships are. But the point is that Herod Antipas convinced Herodias to divorce her husband and to marry him instead. John had been telling Herod Antipas that his, that his marriage to Herodias was unlawful, that it went against the law of Moses. And so he continually was uh, announcing this message to him that like, hey, buddy, what you're doing is not okay. And as you can imagine, his wife Herodias was like not thrilled about John the Baptist, like sticking his nose in their marriage. And so she nursed a grudge. And she wanted to kill him. She wanted him to go away. She wanted to have him offed. And eventually she got her chance. An opportune time came, is what we're told, where Herod, Herod Antipas threw a banquet for himself for his birthday. And this was a a big banquet. We're told that all the most important people were there. His high officials, his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, these are all the most important people that he invited to this banquet to celebrate him. And of course, there's lots of food, and of course, there's lots of drink, and there's lots of excess, and this is just like a a bad thing waiting to happen. And something bad does happen. So Herodias's daughter, so this is Herod Antipas's stepdaughter, not his biological daughter, Herod Antipas' daughter comes into the party and she does this little dance. And we're told that it pleased Herod and his dinner guests. Now, there's nothing that's uh, overtly or intrinsically sexual about the words that are used here. You know, uh, the dance or pleasing. Those aren't like sexually loaded words. But basically every commentator says, okay, look at the response she got. This isn't some, like, cute little girl comes in and does, like, a little, you know, like, you know, your little six-year-old girl comes in and does, like, a goofy dance. Everybody says, this is, like, a sexually suggestive, sexualized kind of dance that she does. And it pleased Herod and his guests. And so when you put together the combination of lots of alcohol and lots of hormones, bad things happen, generally. (laughs) And that's what we see here, is we see the nonsense of verse 23, where Herod is like, so just ask me for whatever you want. Like, and ask me for anything up, up to half my kingdom. And of course, he doesn't have the authority to actually do that. But what he's doing is he's flexing in front of his friends. Right? He's basically trying to prove how important and how uh, 
you know, powerful he is. And so he makes this promise that he can't keep. And so Herodias' daughter goes out to her mom and says, well, what should I ask for? And she says, I know exactly what you can ask for. You can ask for the head of John the Baptist. So she goes back in and tells Herod, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he realizes what a foolish thing he has done. Because he wanted to save face in front of his friends and not look dumb, he sent word to have John the Baptist executed. We know that he doesn't have a problem breaking oaths because he broke an oath in his marriage and also had his new wife break an oath in her marriage. So it's not that he's like a super you know, upright guy of integrity. It's he didn't want to look dumb in front of his friends. He didn't want to look like, oh, well, I, you know, I made this promise and now I can't do anything about it. So he sends word to have John the Baptist killed. And they bring back the head of John the Baptist on a platter. He gives it to Herodias' daughter and she goes in and hands it to Herodias. She got what she wanted. And what this shows us, what the death of John the Baptist shows us is the cost of faithfulness to the message of the kingdom. John the Baptist's life sets an example for us of what it may cost to remain faithful to the message of the kingdom. Now, there's nothing in this text, and there's nothing in the entire Bible for that matter, that guarantees that if you remain faithful to the message of the kingdom, you're going to lose your life. Nothing promises that. But what this text does say is that as you are sent out on mission, as you live in faithfulness to the message of the kingdom, literally giving up your life for the message of the kingdom is not off the table. It's something that God may ask you to do, and it's not off the table. We don't seek out suffering or martyrdom, but we do acknowledge that God may require us to walk through great suffering. He may require us to walk through even death. And we do so with glad hearts because of what Jesus has done for us. So we've got these two pictures side by side of Jesus' rejection, John's death, And I think that we can uh, much more easily identify with one than the other, right? Uh, We live in the United States of America in 2023, and there's not a single one of us in this room who leaves here today with fear for our lives because we follow Jesus. Even if you go into your workplace where you know that, like, maybe there's rules about, like, you can't talk about Jesus, you can't talk about faith, that's off the table. Even if you do that the worst thing that will happen to you is there will be some vocational or financial consequences. The worst thing that's going to happen is we may get canceled. But there's not a single one of us who's actually walking out of here today thinking, if I live in faithfulness to the message of Jesus, I may literally be killed for it. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world do live with that daily fear, but we don't. We do live in a cultural environment, however, where it is increasingly true that our beliefs are viewed not just as strange, not just as odd, not just as different, not just as maybe kind of bizarre or out there, but our beliefs and our values and what we believe are actually uh, believed to be dangerous for society and a hindrance to human flourishing. So 
that's the environment in which we live, and it's increasingly becoming that way. And just to put on my, like, prediction hat, it's probably only going to go further down that trail, right? There's probably not much turning back on this. And so the question is, okay, as, as we face um, this kind of pressure, as we face cultural and social and political pressure of a variety of kinds, how do we face it? How do we face it? And the answer is this. What gives us the courage and the strength to endure both rejection and death is looking to Jesus and seeing that Jesus did not ask us to do anything he was not willing to do himself. That's what gives us the courage and the strength because the same thing is needed if we are to face rejection or death. It's the same thing that gives us courage and strength in the face of those things. It's looking to Jesus and seeing that Jesus does not ask us to do anything he was not willing to do himself. Jesus did not remain secluded in the glory of heaven. And from that place of privilege and security and comfort and safety, drop a book out of the sky and say, you know, if you're going to be faithful to me, y'all are going to suffer. And you're probably going to have to give up your life. He didn't do that. Jesus did not remain secluded, distant from us, and ask us to do something he was not willing to do himself. No, the message of the gospel is that God, in the person of Jesus, has come near to us. And that in all of the brokenness, in all the dysfunction of our world, Jesus stepped into that, and he accompanied us in our humanity. And Jesus experienced rejection, and Jesus experienced death. And so the reality is that you will experience rejection for being a follower of Jesus. You will be rejected. And when you do, it is a response to Jesus having already been rejected for you. There may be a time, I don't know when or if that may come, but there may be a time where you are asked to give up your life for the sake of following Jesus. And if that time comes, when that time comes, you will do so because you look to the one who has already given up his life for you. And so that's where, we get the, that's where we get the strength. That's where we get the motivation to stare rejection and death in the face and say, give me your best shot. What's the worst that you can do? That's the only thing that gives us any amount of comfort and strength in the face of rejection and in the face of even death is seeing that Jesus himself did not think himself too good for that. He experienced rejection. He experienced death on our behalf. And so when we experience it, when we give ourselves to that, it's a joyful response to what Jesus has already done for us. And it's the only thing that will give us the strength to actually be able to face those things with composure and with any amount of comfort is to see that Jesus has already done that for us. So this is what we can expect as we go out on mission with Jesus. We can expect to experience the painful sting of personal rejection we can expect to follow in the footsteps of our suffering servant. But we do so with gladness because Jesus doesn't just call us to suffer. He calls us to encounter him in our suffering. Because Jesus suffered, because he knows our suffering and experience of rejection and even experience of death are a unique way where, that we get to commune with Jesus. We get to experience communion with Jesus 
as we are rejected and as we suffer and as we die in a way that we can't otherwise because Jesus has paved that road for us. Jesus has pioneered that path for us. Jesus has already gone there. And so he's not pointing a finger saying, now you go suffer. He's saying, come join me on the path of suffering. And so as we suffer, we get to go be with Jesus in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection, even in the midst of death. As we come to the communion table today, and as we get to remember and celebrate what Jesus has done for us, I want to just uh, leave you with this encouragement. There is no one ever more undeserving of suffering than Jesus. There has never been, there will never be anyone who is more undeserving to experience suffering to experience rejection, to experience death as a criminal than Jesus. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus overflows with an unending, inexhaustible triune love. And that scene in his creation, that scene in his care for us, there is no one who is more undeserving of suffering than him. And yet he chose to come and to take on suffering, to become our suffering servant for us. And so we get to remember and celebrate that at the table as we come forward and receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so let that be an encouragement to you this morning as you consider what it means to join Jesus on mission and as you consider what it may cost either this week or in the next 10 years or in the next 20 years, whatever it may cost, let that be the thing that helps uh, prepare you for the experience of rejection and even death is to look to Jesus and see what he's done for you. So as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you as we do each week to take a few moments of silence and confession.